Hi, my name is Val, and this is Outdoors-ish. I had the pleasure of interviewing a park interpreter from the Santa Rosa Plateau, a preserve in Southern California with incredible wildlife. Hope you enjoy the interview. Well, hi, uh, my name is Val. I'm starting this channel about the outdoors. I'm starting at the Santa Rosa Plateau uh, with Rob Hicks. And uh, Rob Hicks, I'm a park interpreter with Riverside County Park District, and it's my job and privilege to be sharing the stories of the Santa Rosa Plateau with visitors. You said you're an interpreter. I don't think many people are going to know what that means. I have a small idea, but let's go. Let's have well, you give it's a It's likely that it's confusing for most people. It used to be considered naturalist. So mm -hmm. naturalist connotated just sharing the stories of animals, plants, geology, that sort of story, and really left out the human story of a place. So interpreter is kind of more all-encompassing, and it really uh, just shares that idea of sharing stories with the public or interpreting a place so that people can appreciate it better. And uh, yeah, so you work for Riverside County Parks. It's one of the regional parks in uh, California. Um, how, how do they go about like land management and conservation of all the different parks and preserves? It depends on particularly the site in question. This is a very special story about management here on the Santa Rosa Plateau Ecological Reserve because it's a state ecological reserve mm -hmm. and the county, Riverside County Park District, is responsible for all visitor services. So most state ecological reserves aren't even open to the public unless you're on a guided tour. Mm -hmm. So this one's one of the few that allows the public to enter with an open to close set of hours and so um, most parks are different than reserves. So reserves in California are the most strictly managed uh, land that we have in the state, uh, so much so that they close quite often, whether it be after fire, flood, something like that. And so uh, it's our responsibility uh, to share with people not only the stories of the plays in terms of its natural and cultural history, but also the reasons for those closures. Okay. That's interesting because, yeah, that's part of the reason I wanted to do this mm -hmm. as there's a fire that damaged the preserve. Yeah. And I've been here several times. I found the place very beautiful. There's a lot of species here that were very interesting to see. So I kind of wanted to start with a place yeah. that I've been and is damaged to see how, like, the recovery process is going. Mm -hmm. But we'll get to those questions. Sure, <laughs> yeah. And you already answered the preserve one, so, or the reserve one, so that's mm -hmm. very good. Um, one thing, you work with these parks, you work with these reserves mm -hmm. every day. Uh, what's something you wish you could communicate to people who visit? I would say the most important thing for people to appreciate more is the compounding effects of a lot of visitation. So mm -hmm. most people when they're out recreating and hiking, they are of course into their own space and head and so they're very excited and they're very adventurous and they want to go and explore and of course that's very exciting for people but what they don't sometimes consider especially in a very crowded place like Southern California is how the impact of their activity compounded by those that follow them really impacts a resource. So one person's not really going to hurt a plant they're pretty mm -hmm. tough uh, climbing a tree, not going to hurt a tree, they're pretty tough as well, but we really have to consider living in the year 2023 with all of the people that are able to enjoy this beautiful place like Southern California, what those repeated compounding effects are of a lot of people. So staying on the trails, not collecting 
um, is, is difficult for people to really grasp because it seems so vast. It seems like it's such a, a limitless resource, but especially in Southern California, it is extremely limited when you consider how many people are here. So um, that's probably the most difficult idea for people to grasp because again, they're in the throes of really enjoying themselves and they don't think of it that way. They just yeah. think of themselves and enjoying the, the place, but that can have adverse effects down the line and through time. Got it. And I just want to repeat that because I know a lot of my friends, it's important to stay on trail, even if it looks interesting. As uh, you said, it's very important because we won't damage it, but a lot of people will. Yes. And there are those places uh, that are much grander in scale, uh, BLM land out in the desert or even some Forest Service lands. If you're really adept at reading map, compass, um, GPS units, you can go off trail and almost encouraged to go off trail in some of those places that again have a lot more space and fewer visitors and visitation uh, but the ecological reserve here next to literally 500,000 people and with 40 miles of trail seems like a lot but uh, those 50,000 visitors um, per year can, can really add up to a lot of damage. Got it. Uh, and that leads us to our next question is you mentioned other places is encouraged to go off, almost encouraged to go off trail mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, how can you find the information for the Riverside County Parks and Reserves? Uh, well, Riverside County Parks has a website like everybody else, uh, rivcoparks.org. And uh, on that website, you'll have a, a number of sites listed and shared. Um, and they range uh, from historical sites to ecological reserves and it is a wonderful cross-section of the resources that Riverside County has to share from Santa Ana Mountains all the way out to the river. All right so those are like the starter questions. I want to get back into the reserve now mm -hmm. and uh, especially the Santa Rosa Plateau. Mm -hmm. uh, all my friends call it the Plateau so I yeah, will. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> I will default, default to the Plateau um, but so I did mention the fire. It happened about four years ago. Um, from what I understand it was a pretty severe fire and it did a lot of damage because the entire park was closed. Yes. Um, how has this affected the conservation of the area? Well, it was almost 2,000 acres that burned uh, back on September 4th, 2019, so about three and a half years ago. And it mostly burned chaparral and woodland. A lot of damage was done, especially to Engelman oaks, which are a real rare species of tree. This is one of the only places on the planet where you find the Engelman oaks. And historically, they were found within open grassland, which mm -hmm. really didn't accumulate that much fuel. But through change, um, we've been losing a lot of grassland and gaining a lot of chaparral. And a lot of that chaparral has kind of encroached in those grasslands and surrounded and become real close to Engelman oaks. And when it chaparral area burns, it burns so hot that the Engelman oak is just not adapted to that kind of heat. Mm -hmm. So the mort mortality of Engelman oaks was extreme following that fire. We, we lost a very, uh, a, a very large number of Engelman oaks. Uh, a lot of coast live oaks were burned, but coast live oaks are adapted to fire and having much thicker bark. And so they're coming back quite well. Um, chaparral is coming back quite well as well. Uh, unfortunately, since we've been in the throes of drought prior to this winter season, uh, the regrowth has been very slow. So because the regrowth was slow in terms of plants coming back post fire, 
that did not allow the plants to regrow and really obscure a lot of the Native American artifacts that are still here on the landscape. And it also didn't grow back enough plants to make it more difficult for people to wander off trail. Because of the large, beautiful rock outcroppings that are now visible post-fire, it would be very easy for people to wander off trail to get a nice vista from that rock, to get a nice selfie from, from on top of that boulder. And the worry with land managers was that if we opened too soon, we would almost be encouraging people to wander off trail, pilfer Native American artifacts, um, create new route trails to new sites that were previously inaccessible because of the thick chaparral. So we've really needed to wait for the landscape to rebound, for the chaparral plants particularly to grow back. And um, even though it's been slow because of the drought, um, they have been slowly but surely returning. And because of the most recent rainfall amounts, uh, they've been coming back real strong now. So it's getting real close to being open again. Uh, I do want to ask you a question. Is, uh, most people are going to hear that word chaparral and not know what it means. Do you want to uh, give a brief description? Sure. Chaparral is the most widespread plant community in the state of California. It is that plant community that's mostly shrubs, mostly bushes, bushes like manzanita, chemise, toyon. And when they're all collectively together, that is called the chaparral habitat or the shrubland biome. And um, that's different from a grassland or a woodland or a wetland. So whenever you look at the mountains in Southern California, all the way up to the state of Oregon, and you have steep slopes and all green, if it's not forest, it's chaparral. And um, a lot of it here on the plateau, and that's primarily the plant community that burned in the Tanaha fire. All right, so you mentioned uh, a lot of like, uh, it's coming back slowly, but what work has been done to like restore or help the recovery process along? Um, most of the restoration work that's done with land managers has probably been to try to prevent some of the non-native plants from coming in that really do well on disturbed soils. Mm -hmm. So when a landscape is disturbed, whether it be through development or fire, introduced plants from around the world will sometimes take advantage of that. And one plant in particular, stink net, has been coming in off of Clinton Keith Road, probably from people's tires, and it has really been moving across the landscape. And so land managers have been coming on out with crews to pull that plant before it gets a foothold. And once it gets a foothold, it can really limit native diversity and take over particular areas that it gets into. So uh, removing non-native plants, uh, keeping of course people off the site so that it can rebound. Um, some erosion work has been done to prevent more, um, you know, less land uh, wasting or uh, mass wasting or, or erosion taking place. So um, those are really the primary acts that we've been working on. We have been having guided tours, especially with school groups. So we've been working on continuing to share the stories of the plateau, just on a, a much a more limited scope because it's closed to the general public. Um, I have a follow-up question for like the Engelman Oak. Is any, are you guys like just letting that try to come back or do you do, try to plant more? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. We really don't have any 
replanting programs in place. It's possible in the future that that is done. I think we're just kind of waiting to see how it rebounds on its own. Um, again, the landscape is changing quite dramatically and whether or not the Engelman Oak can stay in the area that it once was, which used to be grassland, now that it's turning into chaparral, it's possible that the Engelman Oak will get forced out of some areas, um, but that means that the Coast Live Oak will just expand its range because it's again adapted to fire. So it'll probably do better than the Engelman Oaks uh, where the chaparral has, has started to move in. And you answered a lot of these questions. I, uh, the next question you already answered, like the main goals and considerations about, of recovery. Is there anything you would like to add to that? Well, let's see. We have the, the main duty with Riverside County Parks is to share the stories with the public, not only through interpretive programs, but through a trail system, which includes the infrastructure like bridges and fencing, things like that. So that's our responsibility on the reserve is to really showcase this place to, to help the public appreciate it. Because oftentimes if people don't know about it, they don't uh, really appreciate it and they're not willing perhaps to take some of these uh, precautions in terms of staying on a trail and not removing things from a site. So the more people learn about uh, resources, I think the more likely they're going to be protecting them. So it's really our responsibility to, to share these stories with the public so that they can be more connected to them and have uh, an interest in um, being invested in, in protecting them. Um, and you say your job is to share the stories of the land. Uh, have you had any like uh, responsibilities in the recovery process other than the guided tours, of course? Oh, uh, no. Um, not only have I been doing programs as we've remained closed with the school programs, as I've said, but also it's our responsibility to keep the public out while it's closed. So we've been spending a lot of time at trailheads, explaining why we're closed, hopefully having people's patience to um, uh, the story of why we're closed, um, training volunteers to help out because we only have five people on staff on 9,000 acre reserve. So it's really the volunteers and of course through them the public that allows this place to be as special as it is and to continue being that way into the future because um, you know as I mentioned earlier there's a lot of people that want to visit this place and it's um, a resource that's finite but uh, can be quite delicate when it comes to tens of thousands of people per year visiting it. So um, really at the trailheads that are closed now, it's been our responsibility to share with people why and hopefully get their buy-in in terms of respecting the rule of the closure so that when we do open up, we'll have a very special experience for people. You did mention that the preserve seems like it might be near opening. It's getting very close. We'll, of course, not give a, an opening date just because uh, we'll become overwhelmed just because of the interest in the public as they should be interested in coming back. So it'll be a so-called soft opening and we'll just open one day and that will, of course, through social media especially, get out quickly in terms of the idea that we are open into the public. So we expect once we open to have quite a few visitors and uh, as we should because this is 
one of the most unique and diverse areas in the region. And so when we open, and I will predict that that's now a matter of weeks, we're now into pushing February. So by springtime, for sure, we will be open. And because we've had vernal pools fill this year, um, because of that rain, we'll have wildflowers. Um, I expect the public to really be blown away and very excited to be back on the trails again. So you did mention the vernal pools. That's where the uh, fairy shrimp and the western pond turtles, I believe, are. Oh, vernal pools will be up on top of the old lava flows. Mm -hmm. So it's up on those old lava flows, the mesas where the fairy shrimp are in those vernal pools that are temporary. The state's only native freshwater turtle needs more water, so it's going to be down lower in the riparian area, so the wetlands that are flowing streams. So gravity will take the water down, and that's where the turtles, the red-legged frogs, the arroyo toads, which is the country's only toad species that breeds in flowing water, will be found. So the turtles, they benefited from the fire in terms of as there was less plant life immediately after a fire, there was less transpiration, which means more water going out of the leaves. So the water table went up. And so the turtles benefited in that um, uh, fire. Uh, and um, the fairy shrimp really weren't impacted at all. It was up on the mesas and the fire really never made it to the mesas that uh, have vernal pools. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one thing I want to say from my own experience is that those unique wildlife are very, very intriguing to see. And I, you could just watch them for hours. Yes, and um, we have two species. Um, one is endemic to the Santa Rosa Plateau and is found nowhere else uh, in the world. And um, I'm really excited for the public to be back and enjoying those because it's very few places where, which have a boardwalk that will actually take you out onto a vernal pool so you can get that close and intimate with them. And um, I'm really excited for that uh, upcoming future for people to be enjoying them again. So it sounds like the most of the rare species are doing pretty well since the fire. Uh, yeah, the fire really didn't impact too much. We'll have to see how it impacted the Royal Toad. That's an official endangered species uh, that's here on the plateau and it is in the wetlands and sometimes what happens is the fire upstream can affect through erosion what goes on downstream with added um, sediments so sometimes if there becomes too much sediment that can bury the royal toads which spend the summer underground a little bit too deep so we're waiting to see how that has affected the arroyo toads, since they only come out when the streams are flowing, and this is the first year that we've had streams flowing in, in years. So they've stayed underground waiting for this year to come out, and we're hoping that they do. Um, so this seems like a really delicate process to determine when to open. What goes into that uh, decision? Uh, there are a lot of uh, points that have to be thought of. First and foremost is the resource. Since it's an ecological reserve, that's our first duty. That's our first responsibility is to protect the very rare and even endangered species that are here. Uh, public safety comes in at a close second. So trees that were burned uh, take a long time to showcase that weakness. So we still have had trees, at least large branches, coming down uh, until fairly recently. This latest set of storms gave us so much water, therefore so much weight 
of water in the branches that um, I believe, I think most people believe now that the damaged trees from that fire, the damaged limbs from that fire are now all down. And so it's uh, a lot more safe. Nothing's 100%, but it's pretty close to being about as good as you can get in terms of safety following a fire for the general public now. So uh, trails are being cut and uh, trimmed back to um, allow the public to come in. Uh, so it's, it's, it's both resource protection, waiting for the plants to come back to again, obscure those uh, artifacts uh, to make it a little more difficult for the people to wander off trail to pilfer or to step on rare plants. Uh, so the plants have been coming back pretty good now with this fire uh, finished long ago and the rains coming down. So um, it's real soon to being open now. We've talked a little bit about the recovery and you've mentioned like certain things are going to change, like the Engelman oaks are probably going to be a little less common now than the, uh, I'm sorry, what was the other one? Uh, Coast Live Oaks. Coast Live Oaks. Mm -hmm. um, how do you expect the preserve to change in general over um, after the full recovery process? I mean, you said it's pretty close, so. Yeah, I, I would say since fire has been a component of the landscape for millions of years, literally millions of years, uh, it will come back and it will be very similar to the way it was prior to the fire. I would also say that we all have to be extremely careful of uh, fire since these plants and animals are adapted to fire. It's fire that doesn't occur too often. I think Historically, every 50 to 100 years, you had a fire coming through that was lightning started or wind driven from fires further east. Um, but if those fires happen more frequently from um, uh, just an accidental fire through arson, whatever, uh, that's when we start losing the, the plant communities that really can't rebound as quickly if they burn too frequently. So. Um, I think that the landscape will rebound beautifully well. I think that these plants and animals are adapted wonderfully well to fire. It's just now a matter of whether or not it burns too quickly again. And if that happens, if the fire comes through in less than 10 years particularly, um, then we'll start losing the native plants to the introduced species that we really won't be able to keep up with because um, disturbed soils that uh, don't get native plants growing back are really ripe for introduced species and that really reduces native diversity extremely quickly and we lose those features and those stories of the place that again um, have been here for millennia and probably won't take too long to remove if we're not more careful. So uh, you keep mentioning like the word stories of the, pres uh, the reserve. Um, I do have a question. So there's these historic adobes. I believe they date back to the 1800s. Mm -hmm. I think one's mm -hmm. 1840s. I don't know the second one. 
Um, but uh, they were very interesting to visit. Have those survived the fire? Yeah, the fire went completely uh, the opposite direction of the adobes, and those are the oldest buildings in Riverside County. One dates to 1846, and this was a Mexican ranch, and the other to 1855, five years after statehood. And that's a very special location. If you have a chance to get back there, you really should take advantage of visiting the adobes and do it right by bringing a lunch. There's a picnic area right underneath a centuries old tree. And it really is a look back in time. It really almost is like a, a time capsule because the sights, the sounds, even the smells are very similar to what the Mexican vaqueros, the Mexican cowboys would have experienced back in 1846. Most places that have buildings of that age the area around them has changed dramatically, whether it be Los Angeles, San Diego, Santa Capistrano, wherever it is. This was such a remote area when those buildings were built that it has stayed a remote area now that it's an ecological reserve. So it really is a special spot and uh, a tremendous resource that, again, I'm really excited to have opening up again soon to the public. So you, we mentioned a couple areas, the, the, both the vernal pools in the uh, adobes, uh, where uh, where do you recommend people go to those after the preserve opens? Oh, Obviously, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, Bunchgrass Prairie is one of my favorites. So Bunchgrass Prairie is still considered to be the largest ecosystem in the state of California. Mm -hmm. Historically, it was around, it was a ring around the San Joaquin Valley in the central part of the state. And this is very similar in terms of topography and distance from the ocean in terms of the climate and elevation and rainfall. So you really have a little pocket of that largest ecosystem. Most of that ecosystem is gone in terms of the bunchgrass prairie. It's mostly annual European grasses that came in with the cattle. So if you ever look at the flag of California and you see our wonderful friend, the extirpated grizzly bear, you'll see the bunches at the feet of the grizzly bear. I kind of started a rumor that that's the official state grass of California called purple needlegrass, and this is one of the best places in the state to see it on the Santa Rosa Plateau. And when you go to somewhere like Monument Hill and you're surrounded by those bunch grasses, if you hit it just right in terms of timing, it's the space between those clumps where you find the poppies and the lilies and the lupins, and those are perennials, meaning that those bunch grasses can live for many, many years, decades, and so they're very conservative with their energy. They store a lot of it in their roots. And they put out a certain number of flowers that are wind pollinated into seeds and then they're very, very wispy. They're very, very gentle in the wind. So that sound that you hear of those very wispy flower and seed stalks is one that's almost gone. Used to be, again, the largest ecosystem in the whole state, but it's almost gone. And this is one of those few places where you'll see it. So sitting on top of Monument Hill and on a clear day like this, seeing all the way to the ocean, because it's less than 20 miles from the coast, uh, is a real special treat. And you're surrounded by 9,000 acres. You're up above the nearby residential areas. So you're seeing across the valleys to the highest peaks in Southern California, San Ysidro and San Gregorio. And you would never guess that you're literally surrounded by millions of people. You're really kind of a world away. So Bunchgrass Prairie, uh, one of my favorites, just such a diverse landscape. And I mean, coast, coastal sage scrub, chaparral, oak woodland, uh, riparian wetland, vernal pool, um, wetland. I mean, it is one of the most biologically rich places in the state. And, and it, it is 
really a fantastic resource that um, um, is just something that is a jewel that um, sure everyone's going to be excited to enjoy. Okay, yeah, and I can definitely concur. I've been to a lot of these places. The whole place is beautiful. I can't do it justice. It sounds like Rob here can. Uh, well, 40 miles of trails gives you a lot of exploring to do. So um, I highly recommend that you come prepared, you know, comfortable footwear, water, snacks, sun protection, small backpack if you need it to carry those things. And uh, you can spend much of the day exploring the Santa Rosa Plateau. So we've mentioned a lot about, especially with these reserves, how delicate they are, but in parks in general, as a person who works with these parks and reserves, how do you recommend people support them? Well, uh, first of all, the day use fee always is appreciated. The, the day use fees that are given to the Iron Rangers, as they're called, uh, go to helping to maintain the trails, to staff the reserve for education programs. Uh, but I'd say the best way to support the parks is by visiting them, by showing your interest in them, by sharing with your friends and family how much you enjoyed them. That's one of the bright spots of the pandemic was that people really discovered that going outside is a very healthy and uh, exciting way to enjoy one's life. And when you go to this place, it has a lot to offer. And the more that you get people to enjoy it, the more people can champion it. And if there was to be, say, something that threatened it in the future, I like to think that people would stand up and step up and say, hey, no, that's not what we'd like to see happening there. We'd like to keep it as an open space area since, you know, nothing is forever. And unless the public supports it, unless we have vocal proponents of places like this, it's possible that places can change, just like everything changes. So getting out and enjoying it is uh, probably, I'd say, the best way to support it. Um, but volunteering would be a good way to help a place like this, since we always need help, whether it be maintaining trails or leading school groups on the trails. So um, um, many ways to support uh, a place like this, becoming a member of the Santa Rosa Plateau Foundation, um, gives you all kinds of wonderful news stories of what's going on in terms of fundraisers, concerts. Um, so um, just being a part of the community of the Santa Rosa Plateau by uh, participating as a volunteer, but just starting out by coming out and visiting. You mentioned a lot of the diversity in the area. You work for the Riverside County Parks. Do you feel, this is just kind of like a fun question, do you feel it kind of biases you towards these parks? Like you look at these parks and these are like some of the best parks in the world? Or are you really? Oh, um, perhaps. I think that's a, a natural inclination to be biased to the place where you have the strongest uh, connection. Um, but I've worked uh, as well in the National Park Service. So Everglades National Park, Redwood National and State Parks, uh, Great Basin National Park, Big Cypress National Preserve. No matter where you go, you're going to find natural beauty and cultural history stories that are fascinating. Uh, but there are a few places that showcase very rare human history stories and natural history splendor. And this is certainly one of them. And it's those six distinct plant communities, four real distinct 
biomes in one fairly small geographical location that really makes this place unique and special. And so, yeah, I'd say I'm biased, but uh, I, I'd say rightfully so, just because it, it just has so much to offer and the public is going to tell you the same every time they finish the trail. They're never the same once they finish a hike on the Santa Rosa Plateau, whether it be back to the Adobes or to Monument Hill or on Sylvan Meadows, across the boardwalk to Vernal Pools. So, I mean, uh, the, the diversity is tremendous and so are the experiences. So that about covers everything I had questions for you. Is there anything else you'd just like to finish off with? Ooh, I don't know about that. I'd just say uh, welcome to everybody that would be interested in coming on up because you should be as uh, you've heard me go on and on about today. But um, just uh, get out, enjoy yourself. There are a lot of challenges in the world today. We all know them. We all go through them. We all see them every single day. But take some time to take a deep breath and to recharge by going to these places. That'll give you more incentive. That'll give you more inspiration to to do those things that we have to do to really make our, uh, our lives better in this country and around the world. So um, yeah, this is a great place to go and recharge and um, experience uh, life and be introspective and discover things about yourself that in some cases you can't anywhere else. So uh, yeah, just uh, get out there. Excellently said. And uh, so I've been Val, this has been Rob, and uh, I just wanna say, enjoy your time out in the outdoors.